Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Hello to you listeners and to Bass founder Lynn Hilton, who I'm back with today. How are you, Lynn? I'm very well, thank you. And how are you, Alexa? Yes, really good. Thank you. And lovely to be back with you as always, because today we're going to be bringing another episode all about selecting the best exercise for a particular vocal fault or scenario. And we recently spoke with Dr. Ginevra Williams, who was with us on episode 75, talking about vocal rehabilitation. And in our discussion, she mentions how she feels that in a situation of injury, singers are better off being seen by a singing teacher than nobody at all. So what do you think about that, Lynn? Yes, certainly if if somebody's trying to figure out how to get back to singing, then going and getting a coach or or a teacher, especially someone who actually understands the vocal instrument and how to guide it back into singing. Yes, definitely work with a singing teacher. It's always good to have a second pair of ears as well. Uh, sometimes we don't hear things or, or notice things. Um, so it's good to have somebody there who points out, oh, can you hear it's a bit breathy here? Or do you notice the tension there? So I definitely would agree with that, yes. Mm. And I thought this would be a good topic for our next Best Exercises series, of which previous topics have included reducing breathiness and finding a more stable larynx. So first of all, Lynn, I think it's important to understand that as voice teachers, singing teachers and coaches, it's not within our remit to diagnose something. That's for the ENT team. But what are the signs and symptoms of a potential vocal pathology that raise red flags when you're working with singers? Sure. So if a singer's saying to me that something's changed about their voice, it might be their range, they can't access the top end or the bottom end anymore, or suddenly there's a gap that never used to be there, or um, they're not able to um, sustain their voice for any length of time, so they get fatigue or loss of voice, or if they have any pain anywhere or discomfort, they're definitely red flags for me. Uh, Sometimes it's very obvious. Sometimes it's much more subtle and it's it's more noticeable to the singer than it is to the externally. Particularly things like if, if you don't feel like your voice is as much in your control that's another thing is that maybe you used to feel like you could control your voice no matter where you were in your range that the pitch was always accurate and now suddenly it feels you know out of control you're not able to access these areas with the kind of ease that you did before so I always listen to what the singer says with regards to how they feel and it can be really difficult trying to get some doctors on board with that because they don't understand um, how much a singer really understands their own voice. So those kind of things, and in particular, if they've lasted for any length of time. So I'm talking about longer than 24 hours, you know, so anything like 48 to 72 hours, I'm already starting. That would probably be an orange flag for me, for many things. But then if we've got a week or two weeks, then I'd be sending somebody off to go and get a you know a scope so that we can hear uh, sorry so we can actually see clearly what's going on with the voice 
Mm. And that's the protocol, isn't it? Advising voice teachers to send their student to an ENT. So what are the pathways that are available for us to explain to that singer? Is it you could go via the GP and private? Yeah, so if I'm working with professional singers, I usually recommend that they put aside some money that they can use if they need to see someone. Because the in the UK, the NHS system can have you waiting three months, six months longer, you know, before you actually get seen. Whereas if you go privately, you can get seen, you know, within a few days. So it is obviously more expensive that way, but at least you get seen quickly. Um, so the options that we have are going to a GP and getting referred by a GP. The problem might be that the GP may not know to send you to an ENT that has a laryngology background or has done a laryngology fellowship. Having said that, uh, here in the UK, BAPAM, the British Association of Performing Arts Medicine, have a letter that you can download which explains to the GP why it's important that a professional voice user goes to a particular type of an ENT or to a voice clinic. That would be the other option is to get sent to a hospital that has a voice clinic so they have a clinic that actually looks at people who have voice problems as opposed to generic ENT issues which could be the ear, the nose, the throat and may not be specifically the voice even though it covers the throat. You can through for instance like the voice care centre you can actually see a speech therapist sort of directly privately and you might be able to find a private teacher uh, sorry a private therapist um, locally as well that takes has takes in patients uh, without direct referral from a singing teacher say for instance or someone who comes from say um, a either a GP or maybe a musical company might also be able to send uh, some of the singers off directly to a speech and language therapist. Of course, the speech and language therapist can't do the scopes here in, in the UK. They can in the US. I'm not sure about Australia. So in the US, basically, you can get seen by the SLT. They'll scope you and they, if they're concerned about anything and also for an actual diagnosis, they then get the ENT to look at it. Uh, whereas here in, in the UK, you have to go ENT and then SLT. So I think the easiest way is through a GP using that letter. I mean, I think even if you're not from the UK, you could still download that letter um, to be able to explain to a GP why it's important to go to a, an ENT that has that sort of specialty. The problem is if you don't, not only do you have an ENT that hasn't necessarily specialised in voice and may not know and understand it in depth, but also they may not have the machinery. Mm. So even if you get scoped, you might be scoped with an old machine that hasn't got a great camera. And so you're not getting a very accurate picture of what's going on. Mm. And what's the ideal scope to have right now? It depends. <laughs> Uh, yes, I usually say not all ENTs and not all machines are equal. Um, so when I was sort of really looking into this much more in depth, say about 10 years ago, the rigid scope going through the mouth had a much better camera, but of course limited you 
being scoped and the visual on what's happening with the vocal folds while it's in use because obviously the it's coming through your mouth and the ENT has to hold the tongue so you're not going to be able to articulate correctly. Um, so it would be great to have both really, to have through the nose so you can articulate, sing and, and the ENT can see what's happening whilst you're doing different sounds and pitches as well as getting that much clearer image from the rigid scope. But I do understand that the more um, recent machines um, actually have better cameras. And of course, it's like any technology. Each time a new model comes out, things improve. So the cameras on, on the flexible scopes are actually, on the new machines are actually very accurate as well. So that's the other reason why if you go to a laryngologist they're more likely to have that gear. Mm -hmm. And of course, there may be situations when a singer is waiting to be seen by the ENT, especially if they're on the NHS, it will take that little bit longer. But for whatever reason, it might be that they don't want the scope. And when we spoke to Dr. Ginevra Williams, she advised spending some time maybe understanding why that singer is hesitant to be scoped and proceeding to support them in that way. And also we've mentioned her opinion that it's better that the singer gets seen by somebody and not left on their own. So what would be your consideration when working with a singer who you suspect may have something there, whether that's a pathology or a tension issue, but is yet to see an ENT, whether that's waiting or is reluctant to go? Yeah, so I totally agree with sometimes there's psychology behind this. Um, and I work a lot on 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 that mindset stuff basically i work with what i what i have in front of me so if i'm able to work range then i'll work range uh, i will also support by giving other vocal health advice in terms of uh, looking at diet um, hydration um, internal sort of hydration and external so looking at nebulizer maybe um, making sure that where possible the person's as healthy as, and fit as possible and that if there's any reflux where that's being addressed, if there's any allergies, those are being addressed. So the vocal folds aren't working with the pathology and other, you know, issues that may be making it even more difficult. I'll also educate about lifestyle um, and um, voice use and thinking about how to choose repertoire, um, how to um, how to space out workload, you know. So I'll be talking about those kind of things which are supportive. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of exercises, a lot of SOVTs, <laughs> though not all of them are suitable. So I, I don't find the straws really great if there's some pathology um, interfering with vocal fold closure so I tend to go maybe a little bit more for vocal fold closure exercises maybe doing laryngeal massage sort of self-massage you know not I won't do it on on them because I'm not trained in that way but uh, getting them to release tension looking at posture so I start to kind of become much more zooming out um, in terms of finding ways of supporting the voice that will ensure that the vocal workload doesn't have this additional issues to deal with as well as whatever the 
vocal issue is. Um, I have had situations, um, one particular one, where somebody was diagnosed with nodules and was scheduled for surgery and she had three months before she was having surgery and I worked her voice um, just helping her find balance, uh, getting a good routine together. If her voice was tired, then we did other things, um, but more performance-related or mindset work. Uh, if her voice was in a good place, then we moved ahead with whatever exercises her voice was tolerating. The other thing I do is I, I do short and frequent, uh, so I have rests and I also check in with with the person how that it feels and also I get them to count out loud so I can hear if there's any deficits occurring. Um, anyway, her voice started to get better and she was performing while while she was waiting and then she went to surgery and she <laughs> called me after and she said, well, I haven't had to have anything, ha haven't had any surgery. She said they put me under and then woke me up because there was nothing there. So we're not sure, because I never saw the videos or the photos um, pre-op, uh, whether or not maybe there weren't any nodules there, that's a possibility, or maybe there were soft nodules and didn't really require surgery, but with the exercises we were doing and her correcting her technique and taking better care of her voice, actually the soft nodules resolved because they can resolve within a few months. Um, and they don't need surgery generally. So mm. I, I can't tell you that, you know, what I did actually saved the, her from having surgery or whether maybe she just didn't actually have that in the first place because back then I didn't know as much as I know now uh, and so I didn't ask the right questions and I didn't ask for a video or photographs or whatever or a letter. Yes, so uh, that was interesting. So what that helped me realise was that actually working the voice if you're doing it in a balanced and the correct way can actually certainly not do any more harm so if you've been working with that singer who is waiting for the scope or is reluctant for the scope and you've got all of that amazing plan in place how long would you wait how long would you carry on that for before you would need to move on to something else hmm. that's a really good question and I'm, I'm not sure i have a definitive answer uh, I think it really depends on what the results are that we're getting and what level of singer the person is. The reality is I've worked with a particular singer who had pathology and I knew they had pathology right from the beginning and I worked with them for 10 years uh, and trying to get them to go and see an ENT so, you know, desperately hard. And they would come back and forth you know usually when things were really bad <laughs> finally they'd sort of turn up at the studio and go oh you know I can't sing and then we'd try and get some rehab stuff in or or habilitation stuff but um, eventually they did go and get um, scoped and of course it was the worst kind of diagnosis not only did they have a polyp uh, but they had um, scarring from an old polyp, which I think was probably the polyp that I'd picked up or all the pathology that I'd picked up when I when they first came in, mm -hmm. which for me was just another, you know, bit of evidence and supported my theory that it's just better to get in there and get it looked at as soon as possible because you can do something about it. 
but there are other people that I've also I've sort of said, you know, I don't think I can do anymore um, because they're so resistant. So I think it's very ind- individual, um, a little bit to do with where the singer is at and what level of profession they are. Um, and then also to do with attitude as well. I mean, that, that singer that I worked with, he did everything that I'd asked him to up until going and seeing, getting seen. If I feel like there's a huge resistance to making changes, then I probably wouldn't work with someone for very long, just maybe a few weeks. Mm. If I felt that we were making some progress with the changes that were happening and that they were being very diligent with everything else, then I might go on for longer. But I think if someone wants to sing professionally, it's it's like if you, you know, what athlete wouldn't go and see a doctor if there was an injury? <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. like, it's, it's just weird to me that you wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And these days, you know, always really emphasize the fact that first of all the sooner you go um the more likely it is that it's going to be minor and then also these days uh it's very seldom that you actually get to the stage where you need surgery usually it's rehabilitative and that's enough to get somebody's voice back up and running and making some lifestyle and technical changes um you know and there's so many things that you can do to get the voice back to health and the other thing is that sometimes it feels and sounds like it's really dramatic when actually it might be just a little bit of swelling Mm. and that might be due to reflux or it might be due to an allergy or it might be due to the fact that you just yelled too much that weekend Um, so that's very temporary but it feels very dramatic to the singer because they don't have the kind of control that they're used to so for me, prevention is always going to be much more preferable to crossing your fingers and hoping nothing happens. Because mm. <laughs> if if there is a problem and you wait too long, then you've got a higher chance of it becoming a serious and more permanent, permanently damaging issue. Mm. Well, let's move on to a couple of scenarios then. And you mentioned swelling there. So imagine that a singer is suffering from something like hay fever, which has been absolutely rife this year, for sure I felt it, uh, or another allergy. And you can hear the audible clues of puffiness or inflammation in their voice. What would you consider there and what would be your best exercise intervention? Hmm. Well, we have to be careful because the vocal folds when they're swollen are more vulnerable to injury. So things like polar... um, Hemorrhage would be a bigger risk in this sort of situation. Uh, so the first thing I find out is, are they on any um, antihistamines, you know, prescribed? Because quite often people who have serious allergies do. And then we talk about um, the best time of day to take that in terms of when they're singing. So the antihistamines can reduce the swelling that makes the vocal folds a little safer, you know, to to be using for singing and also we talk about making sure where the singer is maintaining good hydration um, from a systemic point of view and maybe also topically so then I would do I would probably start off with SOVS exercises exercises that don't slam the vocal folds together too much so gentle 
um, lip trills, tongue trills, straw with with um, water. So you've got added resistance or puffy cheeks with, you know, your fingers at the lips. Um, NG sound sirens mm-hmm. might be okay. So those kind of fricative but resistant fricative sounds. Mm-hmm. And I'd just check in to see how the voice is going. might take a little longer for it to warm up. The other thing which I do is actually some vibrant voice um, strategies using the vibrator, um, holding the vibrator against the larynx as as you do sort of gentle creaky hum sounds just to help get the um, vocal folds uh, to massage them a little bit and try and get that puffiness out. So the vibration of the M and, and, the, and the vibrator um, in theory, uh, is helping to move the fluid out of the lamina propria, so the interstitial spaces um, in the lamina propria. What I've noticed is when I do that, people often say, oh, my voice feels clearer and um, I feel I can get my vocal folds together more. Mm. So those kind of exercises. I don't do um, any exor- I don't do any belty kind of sounds. Um, uh, try to focus more on more front sounds like B sounds, uh, not too breathy either, not too much airflow sounds because that can increase um, irritation at the vocal folds if there's too much air coming through. Yeah, so those and, and I mean, there's some other strategies I might use like uh, using TheraBand to help in support vocal fold closure. Mm. Um, yeah, so they're, they're the ones that I would use in that situation. And does the scale pattern have a say in this? Or would it be gentle glides? Would you avoid certain stretches or intervals? Or I would definitely start off with maybe a third, fourth or fifth glide. Um, wouldn't go necessarily for the full octave stretch initially. So probably wouldn't use the long scale. Uh, so it might be single notes as well. And then just gliding up and down couple of intervals um, or as far as the voice wants to uh, and then just gently stretching so I like to toggle in terms of go up and then come back down and then go up a little bit further come back down come up a little bit further again and just check in with the voice to see how it's feeling as you go. What would be the sign that it's okay then to move out of the SOVT? Well if you're getting clear sound the person feels comfortable uh, they're able to, they feel like their voice is in control. We're not getting lots of air coming through or big flips, you know, that weren't there before. Then I might do something like um, an octave arpeggio to see how the voice handles it. Um, so I wouldn't be doing things like um, lots of flexibility type exercises or exercises over um, uh, irregular intervals because you don't, want the vocal folds to have to negotiate difficult um, stretches. So I just start, yeah, with the arpeggio. And then if that's, that might be all I do, actually, you know, Mm. might do a little bit of um, five note sustain stuff. Usually within, within the context of just the scales I mentioned and the different sounds that you can use, you can fill up, you know, half an hour very easily. And that's the other thing is I probably, if somebody's um, got in, in that s- situation, I would probably only do half hour lessons. Mm. And I wouldn't necessarily do any 
um, melodies either at that point. Would that be the same strategy you would follow if the puffiness was a result of fatigue rather than an allergy, for example? Depends on how the fatigue's um, impacting the person. Because you can get fatigue which is muscular and then you can get fatigue which is more related to the vocal folds. Mm. Um, And, of course, there's not necessarily any way of knowing. Uh, Yeah, so it's a good question, but I don't have a straightforward answer to that one. Yeah, I guess part of your job is to do what, you know, like a triage. So you start at, well, what's the worst case scenario and then work your way and then what are the potential etiologies? And then it's a little bit like, do you start with the vocal folds or the larynx first or breathing or da-da-da? It's the same here. It's like, well, if the vocal folds are puffy because somebody's been um, over-muscling, then you do need to deal with the over-muscling first because otherwise the puffiness will continue to come back. Um, I'm not sure necessarily how, I I suppose history and anecdotal evidence will tell you that and also a little bit of observation in terms of when you're watching them sing, can you see lots of extrinsic muscle tension? Yeah, I would think, but the trouble is sometimes you get extrinsic muscle tension that's not very obvious because mm. a lot of these extrinsic muscles are quite deep and so you don't necessarily realise that, you know, one of those deeper muscles is being is hyper, um, hyper contracted and overworking. It's just when you get the results, uh, you know, of tight vocal fatigue or puffy vocal folds or um, some sort of discomfort, you know. Mm-hmm. Scenario two then, so imagine that a singer has received the diagnosis of nodules which requires speech therapy and the singer is meeting with the SLT each week and continues to attend singing lessons with you. So what would be your best exercises here? Yeah, so if they've been cleared to have singing lessons, usually, from my experience, they've finished with the SLT, usually, because when you're dealing with someone who's had nodules operated on you've got a wound that needs to heal and it takes x amount of time and then when that healing um, is at the right stage then they can start slt exercises and then when the slt is happy that function is optimum post-op then they'll come and have lessons with the singer singing teacher or they might have vocal rehabilitation sessions usually i don't know a few you know a handful um then they would come to the singing teacher this is how it would work in in the best case scenario all right so if i'm working with someone who's post-op first of all after obviously clearing you know that they're ready to get back into singing i'll ask them what's worked and what they've been doing so far if they've been working with a vocal rehab coach or an slt who knows how to work with singers so i'll find out what those exercises are and it might be that i'll take some of those exercises and add pitch to them and i usually start in the bottom end around the chest area first um, because obviously there's the least amount of tension and vibration happening there and just checking in periodically and i'll always start with sovts and then go into 
gentle sound making sounds so I always work with um, uh, B sounds M sounds N sounds and I might start off with um, a neutral vowel it's like like an uh or an o oh, just to see how that works and then um, gradually I'll start to move to the more extreme ends and just check in to see how each sound works uh, I'll probably start off working over a shorter range so I might do over a fifth and then over an octave and I won't go to the long scale maybe till the second or third lesson depending on how because what I want what I want to do is to see well how's the voice coping with that you've got x amount of exercises I'm going to give you to work on for the next week and then I'm going to check in with you next session and see how did your voice cope with that mm. and and that's how I progress and then I'll just gradually start to increase the range um, more sustain and then sounds that are more challenging so either because they've got more airflow or they're more chesty of vowel sounds so that I'm sorry there's no formula for it but I yeah, thanks Lynn yeah. <laughs> I want to answer um I think it's like with any voice that I work with I'm always just checking in and then moving one step you know just changing one thing because if you change too much you don't know what's what didn't work was it because it was the vowel was it because it was the consonant was it the wrong instruction was it because you gave them a, you know a scale that just wasn't right for the voice so I always just change one thing and if the voice is coping and I'm there reporting back that things are feeling and sounding fine for them and I'm hearing that and seeing that then I'll just move forward one step uh, but I always start off with SOVTs um, because they're a good you know grounding for getting the voice ready for action mm -hmm. the other thing which I might also do is bring in physical exercises as well you know stretches to help uh, stretch and, and loosen up the muscles around the shoulders and the top back and the neck and the throat um, just to get somebody in a more relaxed position so we're not working with tension as well mm -hmm. might do some articulation exercises too you know especially tongue stuff so one of the things is that, you know, when you've had surgery, quite interestingly, um, if you've had a long-term pathology, you can sometimes, uh, your uh, muscles and, and your nerves actually remember the new way that you've adopted to cope with whatever the problem was. And even though you've had the surgery or the pathology isn't there anymore, the muscles and the nerves continue to do the same patterns. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you actually have to go in and correct those patterns, which is quite interesting. Um, the, it's sort of like the vocal folds remember what it was just, you know, what it was like to have to work with a pathology in place mm -hmm. and then they don't realise that it's not there anymore. <laughs> so sometimes it's actually correcting the technique and creating new strategies, new coordinations. Hmm. Imagine that a singer has had a scope, but nothing has been found. There's no diagnosis, but they come away with either you're fine, but they're still feeling some unusual things for themselves, or they come away with muscle tension dysphonia, which I think we understand to be something which can be diagnosed if no pathology is found or any lesion is found. What would be your consideration here? And how can we help somebody who 
hasn't had anything given to them as a diagnosis or comes away with MTD as the final result? When they come to me with that sort of um, result, I always find out who was the ENT that gave that diagnosis, what did they recommend at the time, and then I find out sort of what else is going on. Because let's face it, the fact is that when you get scoped, all you can see is the upper end, upper aspect of the voice. You can't see what's happening underneath and you can't see what's going on inside, you know, in terms of the intrinsic muscle and the joints. And, you know, you can't do that unless you have an MRI uh, or you have um, um, wires put into the muscles, you know, that and that kind of investigation's probably not going to happen. Mm. Um, so I was taught as a nurse to... Even if somebody complained of pain and there was no obvious reason and there was no diagnosis, then they had pain. So when I work with a singer who says that they've got problems, then I assume that they do. Mm. And I do the best I can to help them address, like like I've said before, um, any of the deficits and to support their voice around whatever the issue is. Now, if I feel it's warranted, I might actually encourage them to go and get a second opinion. Especially if you're working with someone who's been singing for a long time and there doesn't seem to be anything else going on. I feel like it's, you know, the a patient's right to be seen and to be listened to and muscle tension dysphonia is a really easy <laughs> diagnosis to give when you don't know what's going on because it's almost like, well, you can't disprove it. <laughs> uh, so um, because of what I was saying about earlier, you know, that some of these muscles are so deep. I mean, how do you know? I mean, maybe someone who does um, uh, laryngeal massage who's really used to feeling around that area might be able to detect the very deep um, extrinsic muscles that are not working properly. And maybe that's something that I might recommend. If they haven't already been recommended to go and see a laryngeal massage therapist or voice massager, then I would recommend that, that they do that. And then we might also look at, well, what what else might be feeding into that tension? You know, mm. there's psychological things going on, some emotional. Uh, yeah, so quite often I find that, and that's why the teachers are so important, is just having someone to listen to you and believe in you can actually really help um, the singer. Uh, and it might be that it is to do with muscle tension and that being listened to and addressing it and acknowledging it and finding other strategies to help with it might be enough to move the singer on. Um, or it might be that actually, as I said, they need another a second um, opinion. So when it comes to exercises, I just do whatever they're comfortable to work with. Um, yeah, it's not, not an easy one because so much of singing and, you know, our students is psychological. Mm. And that's why that sort of the, the biopsychosocial approach is so important um, to be able to think about not just the voice but the person that uh, is behind that voice and what's happening to them in their own environment um, as well as their, what's going on in their mind. Yeah, so there's no 
specific thing that I might do in terms of vocal exercises. Um, I might introduce them to vibrant voice technique um, so they can do some self-massage. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole lot of self-massage techniques that you can um, uh, look up you know, easily mm-hmm. and get uh, training on. Yeah, so I do know, you know, as soon as you say that kind of, you talk about that kind of scenario, I have in my mind several singers that I've worked with and and it has been a long haul. Mm. Uh, and it is frustrating because sometimes, if I'm honest, they're not getting the attention that they deserve and need um, and they're not getting... Uh, looked at medically in the way that they need to be looked at. I think we're also a little bit limited, limited in time and resources and, and knowledge. And it's hard when you're working with a with a part of the anatomy that isn't seen as particularly important <laughs> uh, in terms of like speaking is not seen as particularly important. Obviously breathing is and, the you know, as long as if there was an emergency like that, then you'd be taken very seriously. But in medical terms, even though not being able to speak and express yourself is incredibly damaging psychologically and emotionally, uh, from a medical uh, emergency level, it's very low down. So unfortunately, we don't have the kind of resources and knowledge and research that's done in other areas such as the heart um, or breast cancer or the brain, uh, where there's a lot more intricate um, diagnostic tools and strategies and treatments available. So I feel like we as singing teachers are kind of at the front line on this. And so the more we can equip ourselves with knowledge, the better we are able to service and help our, our singers. I think it's really important, Alexa, to also let people know that if they're feeling like it's just beyond their ability to, to deal with, if they're not sure, if they worry that they're going to do more harm than good, then it's okay to go and find somebody to get help from. You know, there's always other teachers who've got more experience in this area. You know, I'm sure if you were to contact Geneva Williams or or myself or other teachers who've got a pretty extensive background in rehabilitation and habilitation of the voice, they'd be more than happy to give advice. So, don't feel, you know, I think it's important that teachers understand that they don't have to deal with this if they're not comfortable with it. And speaking of resources, what are your favourite vocal health resources? So my first one is the Voice Clinic Handbook uh, brought out by Tom Harris and David Howard. I, uh, as you can see, <laughs> um, I look at that whenever I'm working with um therapeutically. I also uh, have this one, uh, Clinical Voice Disorders by Aaron uh, Arnold Aronson, Aronson and Diane Bless. So these are more clinical, clinically orientated. Uh, Anatomy of the Voice, which is a great resource uh, by Blandine Calais-Germain. Beautiful pictures in there from a functional point of view. Uh, laryngeal endoscopy and voice therapy by Sue Jones. Uh, Principles of voice production, Ingo Tietze. 
voice uh, vocology uh, also by Ingo and um, Catherine or Kitty Udalini Abbott. Uh, sometimes they'll look at the voice book uh, by Kate DeVore and Star Cookman. Another one is Mary Beth um, Dame Bunch, um, the performer's voice. Can't find that book. And then also there's uh, volume one and vol volume, t volume two of Vocal Health and Pedagogy, which is uh, from Robert Satteloff, an ENT in the States. Then, you know, there's lots of research papers I access as well just to find out what's the latest. Uh, and... Um, various sites like uh, v, uh, the BVA, BAPAM and NATS and performing arts medicine sites as well as PAVA. So <laughs> there's some of the resources that I use for this particular stuff um, and that's just, you know, in terms of vocal health. There's a whole lot of performing arts medicine stuff that I have as well and mindset stuff. Mm. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, Lynn, thank you so much. Uh, hopefully our listeners, and I know I have myself, have got lots more to add to the list now when we have a student come in who we perceive as potentially having something that we are working against. Mm. So thank you so much. I'll see you on the next one. You're welcome. If you're enjoying the Singing Teachers Talk podcast, and who are we kidding? Of course you are. Share the love by giving us a ahem, five star rating and leaving a comment. Just head to the Singing Teachers Talk main page on the Apple podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click write a review.